The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to John chapter 7. Uh, we'll pick up in the last verse of 7 and continue f- through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Um, guys, um, what a treasure God's word is to us, man. Do you know that before, before we had any orientation towards the Lord, do you know that he loved you with an everlasting love that this is what motivated and demonstrated his love was that he sent his son to come and pay the, the debt that was ours to die in our stead because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in Jesus Christ, the gift of God is eternal life. And so um, we pick up this text on the other side of Jesus teaching. Uh, yet again, the Gospel of John is a, is a glorious uh, book that helps us uh, to understand the deity of Christ. Uh, Jesus is constantly demonstrating his deity throughout the entire book, whether it is turning you know, uh, water to wine or, uh, uh, you know, multiplying fishes and loaves. He is constantly saying, I am the son of God that has come to set the captives free. Now, I want to read this because uh, we began this way uh, at the at the outset of this journey through the gospel of John. And and you know, a lot of times we think of the thematic verse of John being John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And, uh, and truly, that does depict the Gospels. But here, you know, it, this Gospel actually tells us exactly why it was written. And it's in John chapter 20, verse uh, 31. And it says this, But these, speaking of all that's transpired, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. All right, let me uh, pick up the context of, uh, of our passage today. So um, Jesus uh, experienced uh, exactly what as Isaiah 53 said would happen. He was despised and rejected. At the beginning of chapter 7, we see by his own family, um, by the uh, by, the religious leaders they uh, they sought his life. They declared their agenda to kill him, uh, and all of this out of envy um, and uh, and disbelief. And so we we moved beyond that, and, and we talked about uh, the doctrine of Jesus, the teachings of Christ, that he was pointing to the Father, but he was also declaring himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, the one that would come and rescue us from our broken and fallen state. Uh, that he would reverse the curse of the fall and that he would literally be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Um, and all of this was happening within one of the feasts, one of the three major feasts. There's seven feasts within the Jewish um, culture, but this the three major feasts. And this feast was the most popular of all the feasts because it was like a Jewish camp out. 
you know, they all came. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And they would basically come outside, come into, they would come from all over the Roman Empire, the Jews would, and, uh, and they, would, um, they would come to, um, to remember God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel in the Sinai, his provision, uh, his protection. And they would basically throw up makeshift tents and they would live in them for eight days. And, uh, and they would celebrate and they would uh, enjoy. But they had lost, as, as in, in many occasions as we have, uh, they had lost the, the, the emphasis of the, the point of the gathering. Um, and Jesus comes in on the, the last, it says last and greatest day. I believe it's verse 37. Um, he comes in on the last and greatest day. It says on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then he, then he helps us to understand how practically that's going to be realized. In verse 39, it says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so Jesus was, again, connecting himself to these festivals, to the, being the Passover lamb, being the, the, the living water, the, the very thing that would satisfy or quench our spiritual or our soul thirst. And, uh, and then uh, we see the, the, the balance of this text um, that, you know, what I love, and I'll, I'll jump to this, Nicodemus is in their midst, and, uh, and they're sending temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. And when the temple guards come to him, they're blown away by his teaching. They're blown away by his presence. That, you know, that they actually go back to uh, the Pharisees empty-handed, and they're like, whoa, 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 we sent you to arrest Jesus. Where's Jesus? He says, no man has ever spoken like this. You know, they're blown away. Like anybody that gets in his presence is blown away. We see the thief on the cross, blown away. The woman at the well, blown away. Like, and we're going to see another moment today where someone, where many are just, they get in his presence and they're captured by his, by his essence, by his, by his power, by his love, by his grace, by the truth that is embodied in, in the person of Christ. And, uh, and then I think it's interesting at the bottom of the text Nicodemus. Now, we've seen Nicodemus probably about, it's about two years, a little bit more than two years earlier, and Nicodemus came to him by night. Well, that basically tells us kind of his disposition, his, his, his posture. Um, but now he's in, he's in amongst his peers, and he defends Jesus. Shouldn't he be given an audience? Shouldn't we at least hear what he has to say? And they accuse him of being a follower. They accuse him of being from Galilee too. And so the, the stage is being set. Um, I want to I remind us that this is, this is the final uh, Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus would, would see. So now he is, this is September, October. Um, in our, our calendar, it's going to be uh, March, April will be the Passover that's coming. So it's about six months from now, he's going to give his life for you and for many, for the forgiveness and for me, for the forgiveness of sins. And, uh, and so over the next six months, we're going to just see these moments, these snippets, and then it gets real tight and we start to see details in, in days and moments uh, where Jesus remains in Jerusalem, knowing that this is the place uh, where the Lamb of God is to be slaughtered 
uh, so that the, the blood of the Lamb would cover the sins of humanity and, uh, and that we might be rescued from our fallen state and be reconciled back to this glorious God that loved us enough to die in our place. And so we pick up the text in verse 53. And, uh, and here, after all of this kind of debate and banter at the tail end of this festival, on the eighth day of this festival, uh, everybody goes home. Uh, and Jesus, interestingly enough, goes to the Mount of Olives, which will become over the next six months, along with Bethany, uh, the place where he resides. Uh, and uh, he's in close proximity. And you'll see that in verse, uh, the early part of the text, it says early in the morning that he kind of races back to the temple in order to continue to teach these pilgrims that are probably still in town because of the festival. So let's pick up the text in 53, and I'll read through 11. I hope you have your Bibles open. Again, we're in John, uh, last verse in chapter 7, uh, 8 through 11. Um, and, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, please know that we would love to give you one. Please make the one that's in the seat back uh, in front of you your own. Uh, this is the fourth gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament, and it's the gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53. They went each to his own, ho own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so... What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest ones, older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay, so if you uh, this morning have the, RS, uh, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, um, you're basically still looking for this text, okay, because it's not there. Um, if you have an NIV or, or, or ESV, you're going to see that there's, uh, there's a, a section that says that this is not found in early manuscripts, or you'll see brackets on either side. Uh, in some translations, you'll see notes on the bottom. Okay, so I spent about four, five, six hours this week, kind of digging into all of that. And I'm going to save you uh, all of that effort. Um, I'm going to give you the bottom line, the end of the day. I, a lot of people, a lot of, uh, I, listened to, I listened to some messages on this this week, and some, some messages spent the bulk of their message just on that, that piece, which I really feel like just really missed the opportunity to preach this text. So here's the bottom line. Um, this text did not sh show up until the 5th century. Uh, the Bible was canonized around the 4th century. Uh, it was put to print by Gutenberg, by Tyndall, in the 1500s. 
Um, I, I want you to know, since the 5th century, this text has been in place in several different places, the end of John and then here in John. Um, uh, a lot of the guys I read, some I'll share with you today, um, found that, okay, for, bottom line, this is what I want to say, is everything in this text resonates in Jesus' mission and ministry. There's not anything that, that is said, spoken. There's no doctrinal um, uh, positions that are taken that aren't easily cross-referenced to other uh, moments in, and I will unpack some of this in the message, and other moments. Was Jesus tested by the Pharisees in other places prior to this? Absolutely. With the same approach and the same desire? Absolutely. Uh, did, did Jesus live out a mission of grace and mercy to those that were, that were sinners and uh, tax collectors and those? He, he was considered a friend to those. Here's the thing. This text does not betray anything that Jesus' ministry and mission uh, declares. Uh, secondly, its inclusion, specifically in this portion of the context, literally bridges the gap. Third thing we need to understand is that there, John says this at the end of his gospel. He said, if I were to write everything that we experienced in the three and a half years we, or the three years we were with Jesus, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to contain the books. Um, so uh, every scholar, though they would come to complete consensus on the fact that this was not an early manuscript, every single one of them would also conclude that this was an event in the ministry and life of Jesus. And so that it finds, it finds expression and res- that, that that is a factual, um, accurate account that, um, that was placed in later. Now, this, I also came across this, um, and, you know, maybe take this with a grain of salt, but it was said that, you know, that with a superficial read of this text, you might conclude that Jesus is somewhat light on the issue of sexual sin that he's kind of, you know, that kind of takes a lighter view of those things. That is not what the text says absolutely at all. But, but uh, it is said that the text was maybe alleviated at certain, you know, because sexual sin was so rampant that this was kind of uh, an approach to kind of um, to, to help to alleviate that, that concern. Um, I, I just give you all the information, um, but for me... I have found such rich truth in this text in studying, in, in going through that stuff, leaving that aside, and then moving forward into the passage, um, believing that God is sovereign and this text is given to us to help us understand the deity of Christ. Amen? Okay. So let's, uh, let's walk through the text, um, and, uh, and I'm going to unpack some things. I- I'm sure you have questions. Why is Jesus doodling in the dirt? I mean, anybody had that question? Okay. Um, and what does that have to do, or what does that communicate to the Pharisees, right? And, uh, and why would he say, you know, you without sin cast the first stone? Um, there's a lot of pieces here, and as we dig into this, it gets really rich and profound. So to remind you of the text, it says, Then each one went to his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Well, as I mentioned, this is at the tail end of a massive festival which brings Jews from all over the, the Roman Empire, all over the known world, to the central location of Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is, and the temple is, and so they're coming as worshipers, and Jesus is seizing this opportunity in order to teach them. Um, it's interesting, um, that he would have been in the court of women, we see that in verse 20, um, 
uh, later on in this passage. And I want you to imagine that, that Jesus is sitting, okay, uh, by, by no stretch of the imagination am I Jesus, but could you just imagine that Jesus is sitting, which would have been the posture of a rabbi, right, to sit and teach. And he's in this court, and people have gathered all around him to listen to his teaching. They're captured by, by, by God himself speaking his truth, his reality to them. And uh, in the midst of this, this teaching, just maybe something similar to like what's happening right here this morning. You know, we're sitting here and, and, and I'm teaching and, and the Spirit's imparting and you're listening. And then all of a sudden, a group of people just barge in and they take a arguably naked or partially naked, probably naked woman and throw her in the middle of the gathering and basically take over the gathering with a question. Um, I, 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 I do that just to say, you know, sometimes we read the text and we don't kind of inject ourselves into it to realize that this is, this is unsettling, right? This is unsettling. Jesus is teaching. People are being challenged and provoked. And he's, I, I don't think he's surprised by this. This is obviously not the first time that the Pharisees have sought to, to trick him. Um, but they come in and they've, they, they've got this woman who is caught in adultery. Um, where's the guy? Where's the guy? Right? We're going to look at a passage that they're both culpable, right? They are both need to be stoned based on the law, um, but there's no guy. My other question is, how do you catch somebody in adultery? This is starting to sound like a plan. This is starting to sound like a plot. And these people, this woman especially, is starting to sound like a pawn. And it's sad. It's, it, it's really sad the way that the, the, the religious group here is treating. And, and I love how Jesus totally runs counterculture when it comes to the way that he ministers and loves and treats women. And we're going to see here um, that this is very similar. Just the, the, the mercy and grace he breathes out here is very similar to what we saw in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Um, all right, so we move into the text. Early in the morning, he came to teach. People have gathered. They're in the, 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 the court of women. This is also where people come to give monetary gifts. Jesus is seated. They're coming, they're coming to gather to learn. Uh, and that's really what the, this court is all about because now men and women can gather here to be taught. Um, all the people came to him and sat down, and he sat down to talk. That's the posture of a rabbi, and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? So obviously we need to go back to what the law says just to have clarity in that. So Deuteronomy uh, chapter 22, verse 22 says this. If a man is found lying with his wife, uh, with the wife of another man, both of them, both of them shall die. And the man who lay with, with the woman and the woman, so you, you shall purge the evil from Israel. God's serious about sin and its, and its contagious effects on, the, on, 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 on his children. Uh, Leviticus 20, uh, verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer, male, and the adulteress, female, shall surely be put to death. Again, where's the guy? Where's the guy? 
And, and here it really, st- I think it really, I'm sure that the audience is wondering this and it really kind of unpacks, I think, uh, their agenda to a certain degree. Um, so the Jewish leaders were trying to trap Jesus. If he said yes, the woman would be stoned. How would the sinners and the tax collectors respond? But if he said no, the woman should not be stoned, then he would openly break the law and should be arrested. This was the dilemma that the the Pharisees were trying to create. And it's always interesting how Jesus deals with these. This is not unusual. This is not unique. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17, uh, you'll remember this. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar. Give unto God what is God. This is how he answered them when they tried to trap him before. And I'll read that for you. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees. Uh, this is the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the leaders, uh, sent, some of the Pharise- sent the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, patronizing, I think here. Uh, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teaching the way of God. All of that's true. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Uh, A denarius is uh, is a day's, is a a currency that that represents a day's wage. Um, And let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What did did Jesus basically say to them? Look, this has the inscription. This has the image of Caesar on it. Give this back to Caesar as he is requested. But you, you are made in the image of God. You have the inscription of God's image and likeness what really needs to happen here is you need to give yourself fully to him and it they they were they were trapped by their own trap right and uh, and that's what transpired and that's what's happening in this situation too we continue in verse six this they said to test him so again uh in our text it's clear jesus is not uh, is not ignorant to this. Jesus is fully aware of their hearts, as we saw in John two twenty three, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Guys, tell me, what is, what is causing them to have such a rebellious posture towards Jesus? It's been declared in other passages. It's envy. It's envy. They were envious of Jesus' uh, ministry, his influence, his popularity, um, and... So they're, they're just finding ways to bring him down. Guys, um, I want to... One of the things we did during ca- at camp was rec. We call it rec. Recreation rec. And, and it's a big... I mean, there was 296 campers, right? And so they're, they're going through these eight stations in seven to eight minutes and, uh, and competing against other colors. So we were put into four squads and, you know, there's this this incredible amount of effort that they go to to create a competitive spirit uh, as far as between the, the colors. And, um, but, but that competitive spirit amongst the church, even amongst kids, it is not pretty. 
I'm just going to tell you, as I watched this go down, it just got really nasty, right? And it just was not appealing. Um, you know, one of the things we see here, rather than submitting to the Lordship of Christ, rather than, than recognizing that the Word of God is now on the scene, uh, they chose to be at odds with him. You think if anyone would recognize him, it would be the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys were the lawyers of the law, right? They were the ones that, that knew it backwards and forwards. And one of the things that we see in this text is, it's interesting, is that Jesus always spe- seems to speak to the people uh, based on their heart, not their questions, not their perceived statements or even their questions. He, he goes right, and then he speaks uniquely in, in, a, in a paradigm that is, that is unique to them. And we see that here. But, but I want to finish this thought is that, I, and, and I want to just say this, I don't think there's, there's any room within the Christian church for a competitive spirit. Uh, and for two reasons. One, we're called to unity. And two, we're called to put others before ourselves. Right? Do nothing out of selfish ambitions or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others having the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then Jesus is depicted as the ultimate servant. And so, I mean, I think our culture really um, tends to propagate um, me first, um, you know, a, a competitive spirit in, in, in a... In, and, and truthfully, you know, sports has a huge influence here. And, and I've seen folks divided over just college football teams. Um, within the church. And, and I mean, it's not, it's not just a joke. It's real. And, and there sh- unity should be something that we pursue. Unity under the banner of love and the grace of Christ should be something that we set ourselves aside in order to, to pursue because it's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one. So we know that that's the mission and the work of the Holy Spirit to unify us and to let go. Man, I've seen competitive spirits ruin marriages, ruin friendships. And, and here we see this competitive spirit revealing itself in envy that is, that, uh, that, and they've declared their intentions. We want to kill you. We want to kill him. And here it's ironic that they're coming under the... Uh, under the pious banner of what does the law say? And their objective is what? To kill him, right? I mean, like, and, uh, and they're just, they're trying to, they're, what, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, uh, they're attacking his reputation. They're, they're attacking his, 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 uh, his popularity um, and all of that over a competitive spirit. So they said this to test him. Uh, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay, that's kind of curious, a little interesting. Um, For most of us, and and let me tell you where we error when we read the scriptures. When we come up against something that that, that just doesn't make any sense to us or a geography piece that we're just not willing to go to the back and, and look. I mean, we miss these glorious moments to really dig deep to be the seeker and the finder that God wants us to be. And so, so, so often we'll come across something like this and go, oh, that's curious, but I have no idea what that means. Move on. But I, I want to ask you this morning, I want to just, just for a moment, like, because this week, you know, I don't have that 
posture, but I also don't have that opportunity. I mean, I, I'm called to preach this through, and so I got to think that. I got to think about that. I got to meditate on. It. I got to pray for that. I got to ask God to bring. And, and throughout my my experience with this text, or hearing others teach on it, I've heard, oh well, he was writing out their names, and and then writing out their sins. You know, like that's kind of what. He, uh, and all of this being speculation, like he was probably writing out the Ten Commandments. Uh, have you heard any other things that that he was doing that he was that possibly writing in the dirt? But I, I, where's our best source or reference for truth? The Scripture itself, right? Now, wouldn't it be interesting that if we that, that we might find in the Scriptures a place where God wrote with His very finger? And wouldn't it be interesting? Okay, prophetic Daniel, right? So like, wouldn't it be interesting if the book of John is, it has this clear objective to point to Christ's deity and this is another moment where he is saying, I am who I say I am. I'm, that he's associating himself again with God himself. Listen to these two passages. Draw your own conclusion. Exodus 31, this is probably the most familiar. Exodus 31, 18. And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Okay? Chris pointed out that, that uh, in, the, in, in Daniel, uh, that there's this writing on the wall, right, that is given uh, clearly the work of God. Um, and then look at this passage. And I believe that this is the passage that the Pharisees... Now, keep in mind, who's he talking to here? The Pharisees, right? So he's going to speak in their language. He's going to speak in, in terms that, that they understand, and he's going right to the law, right? He's going right to... And, he, and listen to what Jeremiah seventeen thirteen says. Is this not interesting? O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you shall be put to shame. All who forsake you, those who turn away from you, shall be written in the earth. Dust, another translation says. For they have forsaken the Lord. What have they done here? What are the Pharisees doing? Rejecting, forsaking the Lord. The fountain of living water. Is that not interesting that he just said that? I believe what Jesus was doing in the language that only they could understand in terms that clearly demonstrated the very profound and exclusive demonstration that that John unpacks is that I am God. And this, this is who stands before you. You want to talk about the law? You want to trap me by my own words? <laughs> I mean, they're talking to the, the author of the... Of the, of, of the law himself and they have misrepresented it but he is now going to clarify it and uh, goes on in verse 7 it says as they continued to ask him he stood up and said to them let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her okay so interesting Deuteronomy 17 you can read it write it down verses 2 to 7 talks about who is to throw the first stone, um, and who is it? The witnesses, right? Two or three are required, and, uh, and they are the ones that throw the first stones, right? 
So they, they have come as witnesses to this adulterous uh, moment. And now Jesus said, okay, you throw the first stone, but here's the qualifier, you without sin. Now that kind of narrows the crowd down to one. Jesus is the only one that fits that category. He's the only one without sin. And the passage goes on. So the only one that is, that is a worthy judge and has the, has the credentials to throw that stone is Jesus. Well, let's set that aside for a second. What, how do they respond to this? And this is why I believe this writing in the, sa- in the sand and the verses that we talk about is so critical in what Jesus is, is, is demonstrating or communicating to these guys is they start to drop their rock. I believe they have stones in their hands. I think they're ready to get this thing done. And, uh, and irrelevant of that, they start walking away and it says the older ones leave first because I believe they've got a, uh, they've got a longer resume, <laughs> right? Uh, or the wisdom of acknowledging their sin and not being as blind. But whatever the case may be, the older ones begin to walk first until eventually there's no one left. There's no one there except Jesus, who seems to be still crouched down on the ground with this woman who, bless her heart, is maybe clothed, completely ashamed, acknowledging her guilt, and as I believe in, throughout this process, has come to the point to going, I'm going to die, has kind of said, this is where it all ends. Let's continue in the passage. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. I I think that he was reinforcing his message. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up. Now just kind of, Inject yourself into this scene, right? I believe that that the gathering, those that he had taught, I I believe they kind of stepped back a little bit, but they're still within earshot, right? But these Pharisees have kind of left the scene and they've left the scene with their tail between their legs and they've left the scene um, convicted of their sin, right? And, um, but it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? And at this moment, you can imagine she picks her shrouded head, expecting a stone to be thrown, and lifts up and looks around and sees that they're gone. To her surprise and excitement, maybe, blown away. But then he asks her this question, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one Lord. Now, I, I went and looked at this word Lord because I'm, I'm wondering, like, is Jesus still serious about sin? Does he just kind of say, well, I'm going to let you off right here because you've been through enough today? I, I don't think so. So I'm kind of curious, like, I mean, he removes condemnation. In fact, at the, at the end, like, we, we, we started the week with naming this sermon, Go and Sin No More. Right, and there's there's plenty to be said about that, right? But at the end of the week, the title that the Lord gave me was this: was condemnation cured. 
And let me, just, let me tell you why. Because when I looked at the word Lord, it's the word kyrios. Do you know what that word means? It means Lord of all, right? In some cases, it's translated sir. But in this case, she, she is saying Lord of all, right? Do you know how many times it's used in just the New Testament alone? Guess. <laughs> a lot. That's the right answer right there. 740 times referring to Jesus. What is she saying in this moment? She's seeing him. For, but guys, let me ask a question. On the other side of this moment, imagine the moment. She's trapped in her, in her sin, despite the motivation on the Pharisees' part. She has now been dragged through the pinnacle of Jewish, into the temple court. Okay, guys, not into just the marketplace. Can you imagine? She is drugged into church, naked possibly, and thrown into her shame on display. She has come, uh, I I believe she's come to believe that I sinned. I I, I was caught red-handed. I've sinned. But she's also come to the terms, come to terms with the fact that this is going to end in my death. And do you believe that that's the, that's the ideal environment for a desperate heart? That that's, a, that's an ideal place for a heart to look up and to reach out and to make an accurate assessment of who Jesus really is? And that if that is the conclusion, that that condemnation has just disappeared in that moment. And then you might say to me, well, but the cross hasn't been realized. Do we understand that God held, held in forbearance? That how are we saved? Because this really, I love that this captures someone in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their consequences, in the dire moment of, of, of death, on, on death's door, and, and we see the antidote for condemnation and it's faith. It's not works. It's actually in the midst of our sin, declaring him Lord, acknowledging him for who he is, that that's what satisfies our sin debt. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account. His, it was credited to him or imputed to him as righteousness. Do you know that the righteous status of Christ, that we are the, it's 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Let's, listen to what this says. 2 Corinthians, if you're, if you're going with me, you're turning to your right few books and uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to what this says. For our sake, he, the Father, made him the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like, do we believe that faith in Christ literally gets it done? It's truly the work of Christ. It's truly the, 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 the propitiation of the cross. In other words, God's wrath was satisfied. But... But what, what Jesus, it's like it says that I read to you in the very beginning in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you might believe 
And in believing in Jesus Christ as Lord, you might have eternal life. That, that I mean, listen, 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 there's a thief on the cross who's mocking him between the 9th and the 10th at 9 a.m., 10 a.m. in the morning. Five to six hours later, he's saying, you better shut your mouth. This guy's, this guy's got a kingdom and it's not of this world. And he says, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, curious again, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And what does Jesus say? Today. Now, was he not in similar circumstances? He acknowledged, he said, because he said it, right? On the cross. What did the, 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 the thief say or the, the condemned man say? He said, we are guilty. He is not. And he was facing this, the consequence of his sin. And in that moment, he declared Jesus to be who he says he was because of an experience he had hanging on a cross with him. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Please don't tell me it's by works. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. It's the grace of God to save our lives. It's the grace of God. It's the mercy of God displayed through the sacrificial work of Christ. And Jesus offered her forgiveness and grace in a moment where she declared him to be who he said he was. And, and it goes on. I, 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 you know, and it's interesting. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Do you believe those were sweet words to her ears, to her soul? And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Guys, this is what grace compels us to do. It's not, sinning no more is not a motivation of, of, uh, of, a, of the will. It is a, it's a declaration of the grace that's bathed our lives. It's a response to the mercy of God. It is, it's what we do when we have experienced this type of love and mercy that has showered our lives and changed our world and given us a kingdom. It's interesting, back in chapter 5, verse 14, he said this to, remember the guy that was at the, um, the pool of Bethesda, you know, the cripple that had been there for 38, 40 years, and, and now he comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? And, uh, and he heals him and then, then just walks away, and he sees him later in the temple, and he says, what did he say to him? He said, go and sin no more, that something worse might happen to you. Look, being a Christian doesn't alleviate consequences in this world, right? But what it does do, but like, let me give you an example. You, you go out the store, drive down 66, 80 miles an hour, you probably get a ticket. I don't know. I mean, and if you say, but I'm a Christian and God saved my soul and Christ forgave me at the cross, I, I still think that that ticket's going to be written, right? But here's the good news. Jesus, Jesus' blood has quenched your sin debt to the Father and now you are reconciled to the God of the universe and he is with you. That's the gift. That you will never, neither death nor life nor demons nor principalities. Listen, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's, the, that's the culmination of the work of a finished work of a cross that's paid in full your, set, your sin debt has been satisfied. And now what he calls you to do is to be those that love as you've been loved. We measure our love to the love that's been demonstrated for us. We forgive as we've been forgiven and we go and sin no more. It's not our aim anymore. We, we don't want to satisfy the flesh. We want to please the spirit. We don't want to grieve the spirit. We don't want to quench the spirit. We want to, we want to submit to the God that has loved us to the point of sending his son for us. So 
Uh, as we close, I want to share some thoughts that I had related to this passage. And I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to camp out on these. I'm just going to, these are some things that came to me this week and then some final thoughts. How unfortunate that they were, speaking to the Pharisees, that they were so quick to point out the sins of another and so blind to their own sins. Guys, you need to make sure, listen, there's two people we need to compare ourselves. Three, Jesus, of course, the Mark, the aim, but, but there are Pharisees in all of us that we need to ask God to examine, that, that so, somehow we just, we wanna, we, we, we just need to ask God to show that to us. Um, next, Jesus rejects the hypocrisy that holds others to a different standard than we hold ourselves. When we accept our own blame, we take the first steps towards experiencing forgiveness. This is not about the law here. It's about legalism. And don't miss this. Jesus exposed what was in the accusers' hearts without condoning the, women, the woman's actions. He highlighted the importance of compassion and forgiveness and broadened the spotlight of judgment until every accuser felt himself included. Jesus didn't pardon her sin out of just raw compassion. His compassion is what drove him to the cross and that's where our sins were pardoned. And because she acknowledged him for who he, who he is and they did not, they walked, they walked away, as, as Jeremiah 17 talks about, they walked away in shame and guilt and she walked away bathed in mercy. Interesting, the trap snapped shut and those who said it found themselves caught. Jesus was not saying that only perfect sinless people can make accurate um, accusations, pass judgment, or exact a death penalty. He without sin cast the first stone. Nor was he, was he uh, accusing adultery, um, oh, excuse me, ex excusing adultery or any other sin by saying that everyone sins. This event illustrates that wise judgment flows out of honest motives. Jesus resolved to, to, excuse me, Jesus resolved an injust, an injustice about to be committed by exposing the hypocrisy of the witnesses against the woman. By making the accusers examine themselves, he exposed the real motives. And, and if you're making, if you have notes this morning, and you're doing that, write down uh, Matthew chapter seven, verses one through five. And this is where it talks about the, the log and the speck. That's probably been coming into some of your minds at this moment anyway. But um, isn't it interesting that, I mean, how, can I take the log out of my eye? No, that's only something that Jesus can do for me. He can only remove that. And then I have, then I have the, the ability to be his instrument to help others experience the grace and the forgiveness, the removing of the speck. And that's more about what he's getting at here. Don't miss this. Jesus did confront the woman's sin, but he exercised compassion along with confrontation. As with the woman at the well, Jesus demonstrated to this woman that she was, don't miss this, that she was of greater importance than what she had done wrong. The soul, I love we sing this at Christmas, the soul felt its worth, right? The soul felt its worth. 
The religious leaders who tried to trap Jesus were treating neither the sin nor the sinner within, with, the nece- with, with the necessary respect. The same blindness that caused them to not see their own sin made them unable to recognize Jesus for who he was. Guys, you, you, know, what, you know what the problem is? It's, it's our sin. You know what the solution is? Jesus. Faith and trust in him. That, that's the only hope that we have to be restored and redeemed and refreshed and renewed. The law was given to reveal sin. Romans 3.20 says this. And we must be condemned by the law. Now, this is Warren Weensby and Weersby. I loved this piece. I'm going to read this. I'll start again. The law was given to reveal sin. And we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by the grace, by God's grace. Law and grace do not compete with each other. They complement each other. Everybody, everybody was, excuse me, nobody who was ever saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. There must be conviction before there can be conversion, right? We must come to the place where we acknowledge two things, that I'm a sinner and that the, the wages of sin is death. But then we must acknowledge the good news that says in John 10, 10, it says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full, right? I came that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever what? Believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Man, do you believe that God helps us to do what he wants us to do? Is the Holy Spirit not evidence of that? That even believing is something that God is going to <laughs> going to help us to do? Often we speak of faith as even being a gift. And so this is what God wants, is that we would believe in his son and experience life eternally. When we must, and this is so good, when we must confront sin, we ought not condemn, in other words, in others, but rather present the need and opportunity for forgiveness. Isn't that the antidote? A couple more thoughts. When we find, when you, and this is interesting, when you find yourself enraged at others, you may be on the verge of a healthy discovery. You should examine what is behind the rage. Are you covering sins or excusing faults that have made you unusually sensitive to the faults of others? What wrong motives are you masking by your anger? And then... This was the ironic conclusion that the Lord gave me as I meditated. Guys, I, I'm, I'm the first one that gets blessed for the sermons. I, I, I'm just going to say that because as you meditate on a passage and just stew and, and, and pray over it and reread and reread and reread, it's like it, it, gets, it gets birthed in your heart. It gets written on your heart. It, 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 the, the depth of it comes to fruition. And this is what the Lord gave me day before yesterday. And I, I just started laughing on the spot. I thought it was hilarious. The scribes and the Pharisees led this woman to Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees led this woman to Jesus. I just think that's incredibly ironic. You know, I mean, I think that's... Guys, look, the, the mission of our life is to introduce people to the lover of their souls. The mission of our life is to, is to point to Jesus just like John, De- John the Baptist did as the witness. Their motives were inappropriate, but God got his, his work accomplished. 
So how did she move from sin to salvation? It's not behavior that saves us. It is belief. And I want to finish with this. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And, but, but don't miss this, guys. Um, this, this verse came as, you know, as you're reading a passage or you're having thoughts over something, and then the, the Spirit will just bring a, a verse that's just like, oh, that's so sweet. And listen to what Romans, I just want to remind you what Romans 8.1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Man, when we trust him as Lord, when we recognize, receive, when we, when we welcome him in, um, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens the door, I will come in, I will eat with them, I will, sup, I will, I will, I will be intimate with them. Man, there is never going to be I love this. We're told that perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Do you know that, that Jesus took, and this is so perfect going into communion, Jesus took the full load, the full brunt of all, of, not in part, in whole, the whole deal. He paid your sin in total. You will never face the punishment of your sin. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have a loving father that will discipline you. And he does that out of love. But let me tell you the truth. Jesus paid it all. And that is glorious good news. Let me say this. As, as we go into this last song and then prepare our hearts for communion, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. We're born under condemnation. The sin debt is passed on. But it says here, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.